Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to have a special guest in the studio. Colin Lowe is a chartered financial planner with Kingsfleet Wealth. In today's show, we're going to discuss a new Indian bond exchange traded fund that some analysts say is a little bit spicy. We're also going to look at Bailey Gifford Japan, which is a member of the Investors Chronicles Top 100 Funds. Plus, we have an explanation of new rules for venture capital trusts restricting what they can invest in, and that's following the autumn statement. But first, we're going to discuss an issue that's quite close to my heart, which is where are the female investors? Investors Chronicle subscriber Marion has written in this week to ask why the investor that we feature in our portfolio clinic every week is so invariably male. Are there really so few female investors around? Unfortunately, it's true. I don't receive many portfolio clinic requests from women. And so I was actually really delighted this week by pure coincidence to receive a letter from Emma, who is a 21 year old student. And Emma has just taken on the portfolios that her father has set up for her a few years ago. She's actually got very clear ideas about her investments and what they need to do to fit with her life plans. Colin, you were one of the experts on Emma's portfolio. What what did you make of it? I mean, she's got an ISA and a SIP, hasn't she? Yeah, basically? that's right. Yeah. Uh, what I was really impressed about is that she's treating them both differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's really important for everybody who's got pension and investment strategies to look at the risk profile that applies to each of them to say, what are they there for? And uh, I think Emma was really thinking that her ISA strategy is there for the purpose of providing a deposit so that she could purchase a property in a few years' time. And then she was obviously looking much longer to for her SIP. So it was nice that she was seeing them both differently and taking different levels of risk with each of them. Yeah, she she got a bit of a side issue as well, that she was going to go off and do a bit of snowboarding for a few years and wanted some income from her ISA as well as thinking about it as a, yeah. sort of a, a, a pot to buy a, a home with That's in right. the future. That, that threw so a spanner in the work yeah. a bit. <laughs> I mean, I think she was thinking of, of funding it for the future as well. And she was looking to say, well, what's what's helpful? And obviously, one of the things that's just cropped up very recently and just been launched is the right to buy ISA. So that was a consideration that we needed to allow for there as well. But of course, an ISA can only be funded for someone who is a UK resident. So we just had to be mindful of the fact that if she was going to be heading off to the Alps for a little while, that, that it might make funding an ISA a bit tricky if someone was going to be helping her out with that. So she wouldn't be able to make any contributions at all to it while she overseas. Is yeah, that right? that's right. I mean, virtually every ISA application form at the very bottom says that you certify to say that you're a UK resident. So if she wasn't a UK resident, it would make that problematic. And her father was going to carry on contributing on her behalf. That was the goal. She's a very lucky student, isn't she's, she, really? She's done well, but she yeah. does seem to be interested in things and she's certainly wanting to understand how everything works and, and look to find the way forward. So she's not just delegating the responsibility, even though those finances are, are being put in her name. Yeah, I like the way she was selecting sh- uh, her sh- shares for her portfolio so she she'd bought amazon for example because she has user experience of that do you think that's a good way of going about I, investing i've always thought to get somebody interested in investing that's the best place to start say so why do you buy from a particular provider a shop um, service utility and say what's good about it what do you like and if you like that then do other people who you know like the same thing and if other people like that then perhaps there's a reason to uh, to acquire that share in your portfolio yeah it's a good way i mean she's obviously very committed to being an investor isn't she because one thing which put her off the right to buy the help to buy isa was that um 
you ha- that's really just for savings accounts and she she feels like she's an investor and she doesn't want to just put it in the bank or building society Absol- absolutely although uh, there is a very good reward at the end of the help to buy isa so mm. uh, you know uh, and that's without taking risk really so it was something that we couldn't ignore and certainly in my response i felt it's something that she should consider but uh, because the government tops that up for you doesn't it absolutely so it's quite right. by su- quite substantial it's amount it's quite a significant yes. amount so yes. it's by 25% so although there's quite a limited amount that can go into them on a regular basis, no more than £200 a month, at least for somebody who is putting money aside for that express purpose, then it's, it's a great return for no risk, really. Do you think that um, Emma's case, I mean, this is quite broad sweeping, but do you think that this sort of... We have featured another female student in Portfolio Clinic a couple of years ago. Do you think there's sort of a general change in attitudes to investing among young women? Do you think I, this I, is, I really is for everybody so. now? Yeah, yes. I really hope so. And I think it's beginning to permeate down into education as well, isn't it? That, you know, more women are focused on science, on maths, and, and perhaps subjects that back in the day when I, was, when I was going through school all those years ago, it wasn't necessarily spread around so well. But I, I hope it is. And, and I think it's great to see any student engage with the finance world and, and seeing investment as a, as a positive step forward. But yeah, particularly to balance it out and see more women is, is marvellous. Um, unfortunately, I did speak to a couple of older ladies this week as well to find out how, how they felt about managing their investments. And they actually tend to be very cautious. Yes. And there's a general feeling that the financial services industry isn't aimed at them. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, the, the industry itself is very male. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I think it is. I go to you know quite a lot of CPD, continuing professional development seminars for other independent financial advisors, and there's not enough women there. We made a specific effort to employ a female independent financial advisor um, 18 months ago, and she's great. She's She's got a fantastic bedside manner with people of all backgrounds and so on. But I really would like to see more of that because I think there's a whole, not just a generation, but I think there's a whole set of the population that we just don't reach because we're very sort of male orientated and often grey hair and I can speak for myself as well (laughs) so we're of a certain age and of a certain sex and I just think that you know the presence of that Y chromosome sometimes does damage to to our reputation as a a profession as well so I I agree with you. I mean I I could imagine as an older lady being feeling quite patronised by a sort of female only you know pink branded financial services thing but it's maybe that's that's what they need to take that first step. Well, we saw what happened when the Labour Party had their pink battle bust, didn't we? And it didn't really go down that well in the election. And I think people don't want to be patronised, but they do want someone who understands their needs and they do want someone who speaks their language. Now, that can be a male and it can be a female. And I don't think from the point of view of the advice that we give, we should be thinking about what's what uh, sex we are but I think what's critical is is that we relate to the people who we're dealing with and uh, yeah it's just important that we balance it up at the moment it is still too weighted in one direction yeah and at the moment a lot we we know from people who've written into Investors Chronicle there are a lot of ladies who get suddenly thrown in at the deep end and have to suddenly manage all of this a because their husband suddenly dies or they get they get divorced and suddenly there's a pot of money that they have to be responsible for and, and that can be quite difficult too. Can't, if, if you haven't got any education at all about investments and savings and what you know, risk, you know, yep. it can be very difficult. But we we see that's possibly the biggest area of work that we're involved in, where we um, assist people who are going through a divorce or someone who's recently um, widowed 
or a probate case or a later life case, someone who's going into care, and they are suddenly thrust into this decision-making process. And the big issue for them is finding someone they can trust. And uh, that's where, I, when it always comes down to it, it's always about trust. It's that it's the people can relate to the individual they're receiving advice from, that they can believe what they're saying and that they can work with them into the future. And I guess that's the, the positive I would say for people who often do find themselves in that really difficult position. Over time, they begin to understand what's happening and they begin to get more involved and they begin to relate to what's happening a a lot better than perhaps what they did at the start. Now, to talk about the nitty-gritty of investing, um, in this week's fund section, we look at the first Indian fixed income exchange-traded fund to launch on the London Stock Exchange. Kate, you've been looking in some detail at this new product. What do you make of it? Yeah, well, this is quite interesting because it is the first exchange-traded fund to track Indian corporate bonds. And the only way that UK investors have been able to do this up to now is through Masala bonds, they're called, which are individual company bonds. So it is interesting. And, you know, there are benefits of holding this kind of thing, like emerging market corporate bonds. Um, There's a currency benefit and also it's an income product. So obviously you are getting you're getting income from it. And this is quite high income because the idea of this is that these are majority state owned companies. So things like utilities companies and similar things which pay out a very high yield. But there are, I think, quite a lot of issues with it. For a start, there are only six securities in this ETF. So that's incredibly concentrated. Each one has over 16% allocation. So, I mean, that, that's a high risk in and of itself. And then the ETF is made up of the most liquid bonds. So that means that the bonds which are most bought or sold the previous month. So that could mean that you're holding a, a basket of bonds, which everybody has been selling, which doesn't sound particularly appealing obviously and there's there's also to some extent a bit of political risk here because you've got a basket of state-owned companies now i mean if if kind of government regulation changes the amount that the government wants to pay these companies for their for their contracts the energy companies for example then that's potentially a risk although that that is a smaller risk than things like the fact it's only got six securities Um, And finally, obviously, currency risk. I mean, the rupee to pound conversion, you know, you could find yourself losing quite a lot there. So I just think this, uh, there's, you know, higher risk than it initially looks. While it is interesting, it's it's maybe not one for most retail investors. I mean, like a lot of innovative ETFs have been launched recently, it's got a lovely ticker, which is C-R-R-Y. So it's like the curry, the curry (laughs) bond. Um, But from what you're saying, it's a little bit too spicy for for most investors. Colin, what do you you make of it? I think Kate's analysis is absolutely spot on. I think... um, you know, it's obviously giving you a great yield at the moment, but don't forget the yield is always backward looking. So it's always looking at where you are today and what's been going in the past. There are future headwinds for this, which is currency and political issues, which Kate was referring to. If something is that significantly owned by the state, then obviously there are going to be impacts on that if that changes. I mean, a lot of people will think positively about India because it's one mm. of the great emerging markets growth stories, isn't it? But this is the state-owned um, 
institutions that we're looking at here, not some of the more dynamic companies that are in, in India. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, that's it. And, and never muddled the G, uh, GDP growth of a, comp- uh, of a country with buying an underlying investment. I think so often we try and com- uh, add the two together and try and build a story on one based on the other. But actually, you've got to treat each structure separately. Although, uh, to be fair, it, it should be said that these bonds are, because they do have these very long contracts with the government, unlike some of the kind of very exciting new startup companies in India, these are AAA rated bonds. So, you know, to, to be fair to the ECF, um, there's quite a lot of security of that income and these companies are kind of more stable long term growth prospects than maybe some of the more nimble startups. Well, it sounds like some, what, something that some of our more sophisticated um, readers who can understand the risks involved might want to have a look at then. It's not a, a no-go yeah. zone altogether. <laughs> Great. Thanks very much. Staying on the overseas theme, I'm going to look at Bailey Gifford Japan Trust, which is a member of the Investors Chronicle's Top 100 Funds, and it's reported very strong performance over its past financial year. Now, Leonora, you've been looking at this trust. Um, how, how's it? done? Well, really well. Bailey Gifford Japan Trust made a share price return of 26%, a net asset value return of 20%, and its benchmark for topics only returned 13%, so another good year of outperformance from its manager, Sarah Whitley. I met with Sarah a few days ago, and um, I put it to her that um, it had had a great year to the end of August, but Japan's now in recession, so can she do more? And um, um, she thinks she can and isn't concerned at all from what she says um, about recession. But there are some good reasons there. Now, so the reason as an you know an equity investor in Japan is why you shouldn't be concerned is, is because Japanese gross domestic product is less and less related to profits. And she points out that in this quarter when it went into recession, profits are actually quite strong. There were only a few disappointments um, in the resources in China area. Um, and so the reason for this is um, more than half of profits um, in the, I think the topics um, are now coming from overseas, um, and there's also some drivers of change within the domestic economy. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. I think you know UK investors can maybe relate to it because I think as we all know, it's what's around two thirds to seventy percent of the FTSE 100 profits come from overseas. So it's a similar story here. You know, if Britain was in a recession, the FTSE 100 wouldn't necessarily do badly. Likewise. Japan's an intercession, but um, the topics is doing really well. Um, and she also added as a footnote that um, apparently in, in Japan they'll publish figures and then revise them. So they might revise them, might not even be in recession anyway. What she's more interested in is, um, you know, rather than kind of like these GDP figures as well, is, is, is what's driving Japan. And she thinks there's, you know, some um, you know, strong tailwinds for corporate Japan. Um, and just in brief, these include corporate governance changes, um, including a stewardship code that um, uh, kind of encourages investors to engage a bit more with companies they hold. There's a labour shortage, which means um, companies won't be, um, you know, forced to hire workers um, and that could benefit uh, productivity and also there's been a surge in tourists into Japan so that's um, benefiting quite a lot of industries and she's obviously holding quite a few shares to um, play those themes and um, yeah if you have a look at the magazine of the website you can uh, see what some of those shares are. Sounds good. Now, Colin, what do you think investors need to think about when considering an investment in Japan? I mean, it's one of the major economies of the world, isn't it? And uh, it's not been without its issues. No. Um, 
Yeah. Again, I think like Leonora was saying, you, you, and as we were just talking about with India, don't confuse the GDP of a nation with the underlying investment in the company. So don't confuse country and company. They're two very different things. Japan is well known as being a hugely successful exporting nation. And that's where the profit is being derived from. And, and the fund manager here, is, as Leonora was just saying, is seeking out those opportunities and, and looking for how they're doing. And yeah, it, it's done fabulously well. Um, it's quite a concentrated portfolio, isn't it? Which is is great. I, I like concentrated portfolios because it's demonstrating that the manager has complete confidence in the stocks that they're buying underneath. And I, I think it's done very well. So it's, it's definitely one to keep on our list. And uh, yeah, and, and, and it's proving active management's worth, really. Um, you know, why would you want an exchange traded fund or a tracker where you can have, when you can have something oh, like Bailey Gifford Japan? Absolutely right. Yes. That's uh, yeah, exactly what I, this, this, we're singing from the same hymn sheet as far as that's concerned. <laughs> I, I, I just think active management just brings so much benefit to, to people, especially in those times when markets are tough. And, um, and, and Bailey Gifford are a great house for their active management. Um, they've got some superb funds in that stable. Great. Now, we're sort of moving a bit up the risk scale. We're going to look at um, venture capital trusts, which are tax-advantaged wrappers that invest in very high-risk well, sort of startup companies. Um, in the re- recent autumn statement, the government announced that it's actually going to exclude venture capital trusts from investing in all forms of energy projects. And this, this rule tightening is also going to apply to enterprise investment schemes and seed enterprise investment schemes. And the, the government said the move aims to focus these tax-efficient vehicles on the higher-risk investments which they were originally intended. Leonora, can you explain what's happening and how it's going to, these, these vehicles are going to be affected? Yeah, well, to be honest, not affected much. There's virtually no change because even before the autumn statement, VCT, EAS and SEAS were largely prevented from investing in energy anyway. They haven't been able to invest in renewable energy schemes such as anaerobic digestion since 6th of April. And they haven't been able to invest in solar and wind schemes since July last year, with the exception of some very small community schemes. So I think, as, as, as some advisors put it, it was basically a tidying up. They largely couldn't invest in energy. Um, there were a few areas, such as reserve energy generating capacity and the generation of renewable energy benefiting from any other uh, government support by community energy organisations, which is a really small area, and that got banned um, on the 30th of November. So, um, yeah, not not much change there. Um, and I think anything else, um, there are a few other things that will be completely banned from the 6th of April. So it's just basically finishing what they put in place. So, okay. Um, no big surprises to that. Um, Colin, do you think the move makes venture capital trusts less attractive or what, what has it affected the industry? Yeah, I would say the reverse. I think this is now going to get venture capital funds and EIS providers to actually focus on proper new smaller businesses or newer smaller businesses. And that actually, if we look back at how those have performed in the last um, six to 12 months, small cap has performed much better than large cap because it gets rid of all that macroeconomic background noise. It's just looking at the pure investment process and just saying what will happen with the underlying business. 
And so I think actually, yes, it will mean that probably there is going to be a bit more volatility in that market, but it will come down to pure investment choice and uh, underlying stock selection, which after all is generally what drives investment returns. I mean, some investors l- love venture capital trusts and, and will use them every year and quite often a lot of them get oversubscribed. Um, Leonor, what's the capacity going to be uh, in the industry? Well, Are there any predictions on that? Yeah, very very small. And no, there's a reason for this. Um, the government's um, done, introduced quite a few restrictions um, and it was announced in the summer and recently enacted that... Um, uh, VCT and EIS investments were tightened, so they couldn't, for example, invest in management buyouts, um, as well as, I think, limits on the age of the companies they could hold. Now, a lot of the big popular dividend payers, such as Maven, Mobius, Northern, Bounds, Mead and British Smaller Companies Funds, favoured investing in MBOs. I mean, they were, couldn't, couldn't put their qualifying money in, but they did have ways to get around it. Um, now, this has been sort of banned completely. As a result, Basically, this investment season, they're either raising a lot less or in the case of Mobius, for example, not coming out at all. So I think for investors who like, you know, kind of like, you know, established generous paying high dividends, there's not going to be much there. But that may change. Um, The government's looking at allowing VCTs possibly to use replacement capital which involves purchasing shares of existing shareholders. It won't be a complete substitute, but it would be a new avenue. So in future, maybe some of these generous will come back, but certainly um, until this is introduced, and it's, it's not likely this would get introduced until at least na- late next year, um, they'll hold back. So it's... Um, few and far between this year for, for VCT issues. So, so a, a lot that, of people yeah. will be thinking about, you know, end of tax year planning mm. and using their venture capital trust then. But yeah. it sounds get like sooner. you need to get yeah. in a lot earlier. Colin, different. what's been your experience of that in previous tax it's, years? It's been interesting that there seems to be tranches available and there's certain times of the year where we might, we may have a client who it would suit to be investing in something like this and there's very little available on the marketplace and I've always found that a bit strange but I hope that this will sort of even that that out so that we'll just get consistent offerings all the way through the ta- each tax year rather than this sort of peak at the beginning and the end of availability so I hope that it will be better but again as always don't let the uh, what is it the tax tail like the investment dog and all <laughs> those sorts of things it's the same old story but make sure the underlying investment is good and I think this will focus the investor on what is actually going on under the bonnet Maybe we should just touch on what types of clients you see venture capital trusts as being particularly suitable for. Mm. I mean, you've got to really have used up all your pension contributions first, don't you? Well, now that there's the flexibility on pensions as to how they're withdrawn, absolutely. Yeah, use your pension allowance first, I would suggest, um, because obviously there's there's rate relief at the highest marginal rate for an individual there. So that's important. And of course, if you've got the capacity to do so, you can carry forward unused allowance from previous years as well. So pensions are still incredibly flexible there but if those are all used up then obviously the 30% tax relief that's available on both EISs and VCTs is hugely beneficial and with VCTs offering and we hope they still continue will continue to do tax-free dividends as in that the businesses which they're investing in will provide dividends that's obviously going to be the big change moving forward we're concerned about that's a great uh, way of supporting pension income as people are approaching retirement to have a facility like that that tops up their income. I was saying um, in um, the magazine on the website, in the, in the article I've done, I've actually done a roundup of what the big 
kind of dividend paying generous are doing so people can get an idea you know of, of who's coming with what and when if um if people want to see great thanks leonora so i'm afraid that's all we have time for today so it remains for me to thank my colleagues kate Bealey and leonora walters of the investors chronicle and also a big thank you to our special guest colin lowe of kingsfleet wealth you can read more about female investors and the indian bond etf plus bailey gifford japan and the vct and eis rule changes in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.